So we are uh, in our penultimate, our second to last preach through uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, and if you have been doing your maths, if we're on nine, that's right. Josh has 10 through 12 to preach on next week. So do be praying for him this week. <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, we've, we've just so enjoyed going through the book of Daniel. And I think it's um, been really instructive to us and taught us so much uh, over the last few tears, uh, over the last uh, few weeks. It's been really, really good, and it feels sad to me to, to be drawing it to a, to a close, but um, that's where we're at. So we're going to read uh, Daniel chapter 9, and we're actually going to read just the first uh, 19 verses. Daniel chapter 9 is a big chapter, and there's two clear halves to it. And the first half is where we're going to find ourselves today. And the second half is um, easily one of the most complicated parts of Scripture that I've read up till now. Uh, and if you want to come and talk to me about what it might mean and all of the things like that, I'd love to do that afterwards. Uh, but we will kind of avoid it this week. Um, and that's just because there's so much to say, and I really felt what, um, what, what God wants to speak to us about as a, as a church and as a people this morning um, is, is really this first half um, as we look at the, kind of the subject of prayer. So we'll see that this first half is a giant prayer. So if we're going to read, uh, I'm reading the NIV, and I think it's the NIV that's going to be up there. So in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, uh, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his laws that he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. 
yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord, our, of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins, the iniquities of our ancestors, have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your name, for your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. I just pray for us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that... All of the time, Lord, your word is a timely and helpful instruction to us if we have ears to hear and eyes open to the truth. Lord, I pray, would you help us this morning to discern uh, your word this morning, to hear your voice speaking to us, Lord, from this ancient text to our contemporary experience. Lord, we pray, would you speak to us, Lord, and would you help us to be a people who can understand and fathom and pray prayers like this amazing declaration of our humbleness and your great glory and your might and your beauty and your holiness and your great mercy. Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I've got three main points, and it's simple this morning. It's why does Daniel pray? What does Daniel pray? And how does Daniel pray? Sometimes as I'm reading the Bible and I'm coming up to a passage like this, I think, yikes, there's a lot in here. How am I going to organize this in my mind to understand what's going on? How can I get from this amazing but kind of uh, intense prayer of repentance into a context and a culture that's different to my own? How do I understand that? And, and it's a helpful way for us as we approach the Bible sometimes just to ask the simple questions. Why? Why is Daniel praying? What's he praying for and how is he doing it? So that's, and there's other questions, when and where and these types of questions we could ask too. But I'm just going to focus on these three. So first we're going to look at why Daniel prays. And the first thing I notice is that he prays because he's prompted by scripture. He's prompted by the word of God. Do you notice that? In verse 2, it says he understood from the scriptures. Or your translation might be say he read in the books. He's got the book open, and he's read it. He's there just reading Jeremiah as you do, and he gets to this passage. I presume that he knew it already, but he's reminded it. It, it comes afresh to him. Hang on, there's this promise, this, this prophetic word about 70 weeks, and he sort of perhaps does the maths, the mental calculation, and this is perhaps what the end of the chapter is about, and if you want to talk to me about it, we can do that. But he seems to do the calculation in his brain and work out, hang on, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. The 70 weeks, 70 years rather, is nearly up. 
Daniel's been in Babylon for such a long time. And he reads in the book, he reads in the word to Jeremiah, the prophet. Name, and it says, I love that it says, what must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, which is namely 70 years. And it's easy to miss this point, but it's clearly important to Daniel is that reading scripture prompts his prayers. And this has been true throughout the ages uh, that mature Christians and, and people who are, are, are give over time to regularly pray eventually find themselves kind of not sure what to pray anymore. I, I find myself often struggling to think what to pray. And there's a, a great uh, British uh, kind of church father from the 1800s, a guy called George Muller, who was, uh, he kind of was in charge of a bunch of orphanages in Bristol. That's an understatement. The work that he did was amazing. More than 10,000 orphans in the city of Bristol went through his orphanages in his lifetime. And he never asked for money or uh, he never went out and sort of like knocked on the doors and got He always prayed for God to provide and God always provided what they needed. And, and if you read a biography of George Muller, it's amazing, uh, the story of, of God's provision. But uh, what struck me was a, a, a part in, the, in um, his writings where he talks about his prayer life. He prayed every day. Every morning, he got up and he prayed, sometimes for like hours, but he always prayed every day. And he says the first 10 years of his prayer life, he really struggled and then he decided, and he's like, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. He decided to read the Bible first. And this is what he says. He says, my heart, being nourished by the truth, being brought into fellowship with God, I speak now to my father and to my friend about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. See, now he's prompted by the Bible. He's, he's nourished by the truths of God's word. And he can then pray from that place it's different to Daniel. Daniel's reading something, and this will be my second sub-point of his prompting, but it's different to Daniel. It, it, Daniel's kind of reading, and he's like, this isn't what I'm seeing, and he wants to move on. But for George Muller and for many, when you read the Bible and see the promises of God, it can be a, a springboard to, uh, 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 to our prayers. It can be a place where we, we, we get assurance and we get hope that fuels us, but either way, um, what we see here is an important encouragement. If we're struggling with our prayer life, can I encourage you to read your Bible first? Read some scripture. Maybe five minutes is enough to just read it and take it in and even asking, even a prayer saying, what does this mean? Is a worthwhile prayer to pray. What is this saying? You can read the end of this chapter and then pray that prayer. Um, I know I am. What does this mean? How does this nourish me now? But the second thing that I notice, um, why Daniel prays, so he prays because he's prompted by scripture, but the second thing I notice is that he's prompted by, or he prays from a place of dissatisfaction, and that's kind of a, that's mild, that's a kind of a mild word to describe it. I would say he probably wouldn't say, oh, I'm dissatisfied with my situation. He's furious, and he's, and he's heartbroken, and his heart bleeds for the situation. He's been in exile for all of this time. The people of God are scattered abroad. The holy place, the temple of Israel, of Jerusalem, is in ruins, and it shouldn't be this way, and he knows it. And he's reading it, and he's reading about all of the, the things that led up to this great desolation, this 
great destruction and the exile of, the, of God's people from the city of God. And his heart is broken. He prays from a place of deep dissatisfaction. And uh, I, I wanted to share a little testimony. I didn't know where it would come through, but perhaps here is a, a story of, of myself and my life as a um, when I was at university, I was uh, in a city called Lancaster, and uh, we had a situation there where it's, it's a small city. I say city, and Gothenburg's a city, and Lancaster was a small city. In England, to be a city, you just need a cathedral, and they had one for some reason, but it's a tiny city. Uh, it's really small, and there was like eight churches, and out of those eight churches, there was the two main churches, and these two main churches, one was a charismatic Pentecostal church with lively worship, could last the whole service. I remember the pastor coming up and saying, I had a preach prepared, but we're just going to carry on worshiping. We skip that bit. Let's carry on as we are, um, which was a decision that they made, and that was kind of their emphasis was on this charismatic Pentecostal experience of worship. And the other church, the other main church that there was, and I was part of the Christian Union. There was a big Christian Union of about 80 people. So Christian, I'm a student at university, and so all the Christians on campus come together once a week to meet, to, to pray and, and be together. And we had about 80 people, and about 40 of them went to the charismatic church, and about 40 of them went to the conservative evangelical church. They were the Bible guys. 45-minute preaches. I know, you guys are lucky. We try and, I've got a timer on. I'm going to do better this week. Um, 45 minute preachers, at least. I know Sunday evenings they had hour long seminars without any worship at all, very intellectual, and perhaps fair to say, not much passion or joy. Uh, I went to both of these churches regularly uh, and um, during my time at university. And, and what happened in my third year, there was just a group of us that came together and were like, is this normal? Is this right? Is this how it should be? And we were praying on a Monday night and we were so dissatisfied with the situation. There must be a middle ground somewhere. There must be a way to have like spirit-filled worship and, and, and spirit-filled Christians who, who, who trying their best to, to, to make sense of what it says in Corinthians about spiritual gifts and what it says in Ephesians about singing uh, together in the spirit and what it says in Philippians about encouraging one another. We're like looking at the Bible and saying, it says this here. Why? So we need that, but also we love the word of God and it's not a negotiable to study. It's not a negotiable to kind of leave it to the side. It's, it's, it's fundamental and we need this. And, and, and so we like struggled. So we prayed and we prayed every Monday for a long time and our prayer meetings um, grew to about 20 or 30 of us in this little cramped room praying for this situation. And at the end of university, there was, we didn't have an answer. We, we kind of were packing up, getting ready to graduate and to leave and to go off to different places. And a friend of mine came to me, I don't remember when, at some point and said, hey, did you know? And he wasn't part of our prayer meeting, actually. Uh, so he had no idea that we were praying, although he knew we were frustrated. He said, did you know that there's a, a New Frontiers church plant starting in the city? And I was like, no, and I don't know what that means. I'd never heard of New Frontiers. I had no idea what that could mean. And he was like, oh, you don't know? Oh, let me tell you what they're like. He said, it's really interesting because they kind of label themselves as a word and spirit church. And I was like, what? 
that's not possible. What do you mean? Explain yourself. And he explained that what it meant was that they loved the Bible. They had a reformed theology that was robust and deep and nourished them. And, and from that, they believed in spiritual gifts and they believed in expressions of joy being normal for Christians, that believing in the gospel meant joy in your life and that you would express that perhaps even in worship. And it was amazing to us and we were like, wow, that's a real answer to prayer. And then we left <laughs> the city and went off and did our own things. But that church called, was a church called Lancaster City Church, which is the church that Josh and Nina went to uh, support and were part of leading that church plan into existence. So we were praying for them before they came to this city. And, and when I went back to Lancaster, for me, it was an amazing testimony to walk into this now big and thriving church that was, to be, to be fair, and it's kind of sad, but it was now filled with all the people that had been so dissatisfied at the two extremes of the church spectrum that there was that they'd come into this church. But what an amazing testimony of a group of people just praying from dissatisfaction, wanting to see what they read in Scripture come about. And um, yeah, that's a, a testimony. <laughs> I hope encourages you, it encourages me. Why Daniel prays? So what does Daniel pray? Um, well, the first thing we notice, the biggest part of this prayer is a prayer of repentance. About 14 verses given over to repentance. And, and Daniel doesn't shy away from calling sin, sin, and, and describing it for what it is. And I think there's a challenge to us today. Our culture is a bit different. Uh, even in church circles, we're much more comfortable uh, making sin sound a little different. Perhaps we talk, you know, it's about weakness or struggling or I find it hard or I was a bit tempted. And we use these types of words and that's okay. That's the language we use, but perhaps it kind of excuses a little bit and, and actually maybe masks something important about how we should relate to sin that I see here in Daniel's prayer because Daniel has no problem saying what sin is. And we'll see in a minute, he has no problem counting himself in that when we wouldn't, I think. I wouldn't. I wouldn't naturally pray as Daniel prays. And I think it's because of our language surrounding sin. I find it harder. I'm struggling with or what have you. Daniel uses stronger words. Verse five is a good summary. He says this, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled and turned aside from God's law. And it's true that here, uh, the sin is very specifically a, a sin of national idolatry. For kind of four, 500 years, the people of God have had the temple of God in their midst and yet they've been consistently worshiping other gods, other idols, bringing in other uh, totems and, and, and idols and going to the other high places to worship other gods and in ways that God's outrightly forbidden and doing things that are, are, are hurtful, um, uh, you know, ritual prostitution, child sacrifice. These were parts of the ways that the surrounding nations worshipped their gods. So God says, don't do that. And yet, consistently, the people of God kind of oscillate. You read in the book of Judges and then in the book of, of 1 and 2 Kings, they oscillate between, okay, God, we're coming back to you, and then, oh, maybe we'll go and worship these guys a little bit too and just hedge our bets. And God's word to them 
uh, is clear from the very beginning, right actually with Moses, he says and kind of foreshadows knowing that one day my people are just going to go too far and the only solution will be to exile them from the land. Their sin will bring on a curse to the land and I, for, for their benefit, for their good, I'll need to remove them. But he says this, and I think perhaps this is what one of the hope prophetic hopes that Daniel is clinging to. He says this in 2 Chronicles. God does in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a real... Um, it's, I mean, it's a big story, the story of, uh, of, the, of the national sin uh, of the people of God and the effect that it has on, on the land and the effect that it has with their relationship. But at the core of Daniel's prayer here is a confession of sin and, uh, and a kind of a corporate repentance, although he repents, he's on his own, isn't he? And I felt confession uh, is a bit of a hard word to stomach, it's a bit of a hard word in our kind of vocabulary. It's a bit of a hard word in our culture. It means different things in different Christian circles. It means different things in different contexts. But I think at the core, what we see here is that in Daniel, confession is about recognizing the seriousness of sin for what it is and, and its massive contrast with God's holiness. Notice when Daniel prays in, in verse 4, before that summary of all of this, the wickedness that we read in verse 5, before that, verse 4, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God. Our sin is so serious, not because we're comparing to one another, but because how it contrasts with God's greatness. That's the seriousness of it. If we compare with one another, we'll find that we're not that bad, perhaps. We can easily read the papers and find people way worse than us. That's not the point. That's not how it works. And that's why we shouldn't feel so, uh, so like, nervous and worried about confessing to one another. It's not comparison. We have a great and awesome and holy God, and our sin has this gulf of difference between us and him. But rather, confession is about living in a relationship honestly. Think about our relationships with one another. When we mess up, the relationship won't last if you don't say sorry. The relationship won't last if you sweep it under the carpet. Relationships wither and die when there's no accountability for the mistakes that we make. We need in all of our relationships to be able to say sorry, to own up, to confess, and then to learn from and try and move on together in our relationships. That's what repentance is about. Another illustration that, that is so common in scripture is, is that of a, of a parent and a child. And I think of my relationship with Harry, who's very much testing the boundaries of, of my laws, as it were, to him. And I say to him, Harry, if you throw your toy from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs, it's going to break. And you're going to be distraught. You're going to be so sad when your favorite toy breaks. But daddy, I want to drop it. I want to throw it. I want to. No, da Harry, I know you do, but I love you and I care about you. And it's going, this is in the long term, 
is bad for you. In the short term, it seems like it's fun, but it's plastic. It's going to break. It's going to break. And I love you. So I'm saying no. Don't do it. And it's because I want to have teaching moments with Harry. It's because I want to have opportunity to show him a better way. It's because I want him to grow and mature and be a good person in this world that I really, really want him to own up to his mistakes. I really want him to be quick to say, Daddy, oh, I messed up. You know, we're having this problem at the moment where uh, he, he hides when he wets himself. He doesn't want to tell us. He's shamed. He's embarrassed by it. But I can't fix that problem if he doesn't tell me about it. And I feel like partly that's what confession, that's what this repentance is about. Notice, Daniel doesn't disqualify himself from coming before God and praying bold prayers because of all of this amazing, massive sin that he's talking about. He's not disqualified from coming to God. Sin doesn't disqualify anyone from coming to God. That's the beat of scripture. He says, come, tell me. It's unrepentant sin. It's the stuff that we don't tell. It's the stuff that we hide. It's the stuff we try and get away with. It's the stuff that we think no one will know. It's the stuff that we think isn't that bad. It's the stuff that we don't bring up. That's where the issue is. Let us be serious about our sin and offer up ourselves to the teaching moment where God the Father leads us in a better way. The other thing that Daniel prays so we've talked about why Daniel prays. He's prompted by scripture and he's moved by dissatisfaction. And what he's prayed, he's prayed for repentance, but he's also prayed for a restoration, an end to exile and to restore the temple. And this goes back to this dissatisfaction. He's living in a world and he's reading something different. You imagine him reading the story of Genesis like we've done and we've looked at Genesis and looked at the garden and looked at the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God before in the garden. And then you look at your own life, you think this isn't it. Sometimes we look at the early church in the book of Acts and we think, ah, oh, this isn't it. As we read scripture, we can see things and see stuff and think, what, what's going on in our world? I'm, I'm dissatisfied. I want something more, and, and that's what Daniel sees. He sees um, a situation that isn't as it should be, and he prays into it. We see in verse 17, he says, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He prays that God would act to bring about an end to exile, and that he'd restore the temple and restore the people of God. Again, it, it, we could, I mean, prayer is such a big topic. Notice, he's praying back to God anyway, what God's promised to do. That's the point of that passage in Jeremiah. God said after 70 years, I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to do it. And Daniel's like, God, will you do it? And I, I find that dynamic in prayer really hard to fathom. But I, but I see it, and so we do it. God, I see your scripture says you're going, you're going to fill the ends of the earth, that we're going to make disciples to the ends of the earth, that we're going to, the church is going to grow. God, will you do it? You say you're going to do it. God, will you do it? That's what we see here. We're praying for what God says he's going to do. do. So finally, uh, and perhaps more briefly, how does Daniel pray? Uh, and I noticed three things. Firstly, humbly. He includes himself in need of repentance. Verse 8 to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. And actually throughout, it's we, it's we, it's us, it's, it's, it's your people, O God, of which I am one. 
which is strange because if you remember, Daniel was whisked away when he was a boy. He was like a child, basically, when the exile happened, and he was brought into Babylon. And as we've read this story in Daniel, he's like a superhero of righteousness. He's like the, he's the main man. He's like amazing faithfulness to God. In, you know, in front of near certain death, he stands his ground and says, I will not turn away from God. I won't act in a way that, that's, uh, that's kind of contrary to what the word of God says. Daniel is an example of faithfulness in exile, let alone in Jerusalem, in the temple, where everyone's, you know, got God with them. No, in exile, Daniel is a model of faithfulness. He didn't do any of the things that led to this situation. He couldn't have. He wasn't there. And yet, his humility shows throughout. And it's because, I, I mean, I think he knows that he didn't do those things, but he also knows that he would. He also knows that he's capable of it. He also knows what's in his heart. It's an interesting thing. I find when you meet, sometimes you meet religious people um, and they have a, a holier-than-thou attitude. There's a sense of pride in their religiosity. This is at odds with Christian maturity. This is, a, this is like a, uh, an, an oxymoron. It's just contradictory. It doesn't match up. As we move forward in our journey with God, we find ourselves more aware of God's greatness and our not-so-greatness, to put it mildly. We're aware more of our frailty. We're aware more of the things that are going to be a difficulty for us and struggle for us. And we might find that we've, we will, I hope we will, we absolutely will have more victory and victory over things. And there's things that I look back on in my life and think, thank goodness God you've delivered me through it. But it's God who's done the work in my life to make me more like his son. It's not me doing it. And that's what we see in, in Daniel, isn't it? Humility. We also see that his prayer, he prays based on God's character, not our own deeds. Verse 18, he says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. God, this has got nothing to do with us. You're merciful. Have mercy on us. We, okay, fine, me and Shad, Meshach and Abednego, we've done a great job. We've really represented. We've been, but it's not about that. That means nothing. It's meaningless. It's why Paul says, and he's got reasons to boast, right? All of my good works are filthy rags next to knowing Jesus. Because knowing Jesus, having Jesus in your heart, knowing him is to know God's great mercy, and finally, we see that how does he pray? He prays for the sake of God's name. That's how we're going to land this morning. You notice in verse 19, he says, Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel isn't concerned with his own reputation, but at the fame and the glory of God, the perception that the nations have. What do they think? And it says, there's another translation that says, your people, your city, Jerusalem, is a byword to the nations. In other words, you talk about it, uh, we, you know, we have a word, oh, you know, filthy heathens or barbarians. There's words that we use to describe, you know, it's got connotations. It, it means something. You can say the word and everyone knows what you're uh, talking about. 
stereotypes is another word. They're not good. Uh, and he's saying, we've become a stereotype to the nations of failure, of brokenness. God, are you going to let them trample your name into the dirt? He's broken for the glory and the honor and the name of God. And it's something that I felt about prayer is that we often can fall into the trap of praying very, uh, quite, quite simple prayers. And I don't, want to, I don't want to say self-centered prayers because, and I'll tell you in a minute why, but they, they're prayers that's just about me and my situation right here, right now. And we forget that we're called to something greater and to something more. And let me say this we are absolutely called to pray for our situation right here, right now. And God cares so deeply for each and every one of us. He really cares for all of the small things, what we would perhaps say are small, that in comparison to praying for the nation, praying for the restoration of the temple seems small and insignificant. But to God, they mean a lot because he loves you and he loves us. Because he's our father, Jesus says, um, you know, you being a good parent, when your son or child asks you, would you give them a snake? No. How much more then does your heavenly father know how to give you good things? That's the real reality. He's good and he loves us. And so he gives us good things. And so we pray our prayer and we ask God, you know, give us this day our daily bread. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. But that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, begins with our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We start with, hallowed be your name. God, glorify your name. Lord, honor and worthiness and, and worship and fame and glory to you and to you alone. Do we pray like that? Do we pray like that? There was a, a, a quote from uh, uh, John Piper, uh, which is maybe a bit long, but I put it up so you can read it with me. Uh, and as I read this, I... Uh, I, I, I saw in myself, uh, I, I was moved. I think it, it moved me in uh, wanting to, to pray uh, from this place of what, I, what he calls holy dissatisfaction, which I think is what Daniel is praying out of, holy dissatisfaction. And he, re, he says this, Therefore, every believer whose contentment is really from the Spirit of God is a dissatisfied believer. Every true believer is, and therefore every true believer is a person who prays. Prayer is the heartfelt expression of holy dissatisfaction. The more satisfied you are with yourself and the way you are and with the way the world is, the less you will pray. But the more you desire all the fullness of God, the more you desire to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, the more you desire to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit according to the riches of God's glory, the more you desire to know the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance, and the more you desire to be holy, pure and compassionate and patient and kind and tender-hearted and bold and fruitful, the more you will pray and the more passionately you will pray. Little prayer signifies little desire for God. Perfunctory, I had to look that word up, and I've indifferent, kind of small, sort of insignificant prayers signifies an indifferent relationship with God. We want to be a people 
that pray big prayers, big prayers for ourselves. That that you, you might recognize is a lot of scriptures from Ephesians and Paul's prayer in the Ephesians for believers. How often do we pray again to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? There's more in our relationship with God. There's more to have from God. There's more to receive individually as believers in our maturity, in our walk. And there's more for this church as well. There's more for the churches in the nations. I look around at a church disunified. Is that a word? I look around at a church that doesn't talk to each other, doesn't pray with each other. I look around at a church that kind of keeps each other at arm's length and it breaks my heart and I don't have any easy answers, but I do feel stirred to pray. I look around at a nation that is going in a very different direction to the word of God and we are increasingly at odds with our culture. I want that to stir me to pray. I don't have answers. I want to pray. So we want to be a church that prays. A church that prays as we see in Scripture, uh, like powerful, powerful encouragements uh, of God who answers prayer, a God who can move. Because it's not long after this that God brings about the decree to send people back to Jerusalem and they start to rebuild the temple. We read the story in Ezra and Nehemiah about how God provides and how God makes a way and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls and the people come back. We also read in the New Testament another fulfillment of the prophetic words here, how the king comes back. Again, the the part that we're not reading in the end of this chapter talks about a coming one. Who is he? He's Jesus. And you can add up the dates and the weeks and the months at the end of this chapter to, and there's controversy here, but the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, God fulfills this promise. God answers this prayer with Jesus, the coming king. So to us this morning, we can pray bold prayers. We can pray the prayer that seems unfathomable. We can pray Uh, prayers from dissatisfaction with uh, faith. And we might not see the answers. If I hadn't ever gone back to Lancaster, if I hadn't ever been called to uh, join kind of this church planting movement to Gothenburg, I'd never have gone back to Lancaster and I wouldn't have known about City Church. And that would have been okay. I would have found out in glory all about it. But me and my friends prayed and God answered. And we weren't the only ones. And we're not the only ones praying for this nation. Let's join with the saints. Let's join with the saints around the world and pray. Big prayers. So if I can invite the band up, we are going to take communion in a minute. And um, what I encourage us to do, a big part of this prayer is is about uh, confession and is about uh, repentance. And a big part of how uh, uh, Paul the Apostle talks about communion is about repentance and confession. But our minds make it into this big guilt and shame thing that it doesn't need to be. It's about recognizing our humbleness, recognizing our frailty, and coming to God our Father and saying, God, I love you. Will you teach me in this moment? Will you lead me in a better way? So I hope that as we take communion, we can do that. And then we're going to sing some songs that I think... um, leaders as a church to, to, to be bold in our prayer, to be uh, dissatisfied and, and to turn that into prayer, to channel it into praying because I believe that's what God is stirring us and calling us to do. So if we'd like to stand, uh, communion is actually at the back of the room and to this side, your left-hand side. 
and we'll, we'll start there. So what we'll do is I'll pray for us in a minute and then we can go and we can take the bread and the wine. And perhaps you want to do this on your own. Uh, perhaps you want to, to pray a short prayer with, with a partner or in, in small groups, that's okay. And then the band will come back and, and lead us in worship. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you answer prayer. Lord, we thank you that you make a way where it doesn't seem that there could be. Lord, we thank you that you reconcile and restore. Lord, and I pray, Lord, this morning, would you do a work of reconciliation? Lord, a work of restoration. Lord, the bore and paid for by the broken body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice, Lord, and the obedience of, of Jesus' death on the cross for us in our place. Lord, it's not, it's not our righteousness, Lord, but it's your mercy that we cling to this morning. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.